invite you to remain standing out of reverence and honor for God's Word. If you have a Bible, do feel free to make your way to Luke chapter 9. And even as we just read that this morning in a unique way we get to behold the glory of Christ. It was the great John Owen who once said that there is nothing more beneficial, more noble for the Christian to set his mind and his heart upon than this glory of Christ. And so let us turn our attention to that very subject this morning in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And these are the words of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And so ends the reading of God's word. And what do we know about God's word? And let us pray. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, it is indeed our chief delight. It is our greatest privilege. It is our highest joy to behold the glory of your Son, to see the King in his beauty. But we do come with such weak and feeble eyesight. And so we do ask humbly that you would give us eyes to see that you would enlighten our hearts by the power of your Spirit and through your word to behold your Son and so even to be like him. And we do ask these things in the great and in the strong name of Jesus Christ and for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. And if men may talk of kings, then why not I? said Henry to the two other men. And one of them thought about it for a minute and then replied, Ah, yes, but sir, you speak as if you were a king. And if thou be a king, then where is thy crown? Well, that is a bit of dialogue from Shakespeare's play, King Henry IV. It's a scene where King Henry finds himself a bit lost in the forest. And above that, as far as his attire goes, he is without his usual Royal, royal garb, and most notably, he is without his crown on his head. And as he's meandering through the forest, he happens across these two men, and they, of course, do not recognize him to be the king. They think of him as just an average Joe, and so they understandably ask him that question. 
Sir, you speak like you're a king, but if thou be a king, then where's thy crown? And friends, this morning for us in Luke's gospel is much the same. As King Jesus has just foretold of the coming kingdom, even that they would see this kingdom to his rather bewildered disciples who are perhaps wondering, yes, Jesus, you talk like a king, but where's your crown to match all this kingdom talk? And so this morning, we get to behold how his crown, as it were, is placed upon his head as the glory of the only beloved Son of God is unveiled. And so we'll walk through this text in two simple portions. First, you look at the glory of Christ, and secondly, you look at the authority of Christ. But our main point this morning is, is quite simply that, that Christians are those who see the glory of Christ and submit to the authority of Christ. See the glory and submit to his authority. So let's jump right in. Firstly, the glory of Christ, verses 28 through 32. And so notice, firstly, in verse 28, Luke picks up the story by placing us after these sayings or these words, most certainly referring to what we looked at last week, namely the manifestation of the kingdom of God. And Luke wastes no time tipping us off that something big is about to happen. The biblical fuse is lit, as it were. We're on a mountain so often a way to signal God's transcendence. Eight days, we have a period of one week plus the first day. But more than anything, notice the intended purpose of this mountain ascent is to pray. It's the most startling and magnificent thing to examine just how often and with what fervor the Lord Jesus prayed. That he was the consummate, spirit-filled man of prayer that it was his daily delight to commune with God the Father in prayer and that he would retreat not only to pray by himself, but as is implied here, to pray with others. And of course, it does us absolutely no good to say, well, that because Jesus was fully God, he did not really need to pray when it comes right down to it. No, no, and no. As the Son of God, he could do nothing less than give his whole heart in devotion to God the Father. And that is a question for us this morning. To quote the great John Owen again on prayer, do you have a desire to get an experience of the power of the gospel? An experience of the power of the gospel. Does such excitement, such zeal, characterize your prayer life? As we see next, such power is right where Luke takes us in verse 29, that while praying, the form of Jesus is transfigured into this resplendent glory, this lightning-like appearance, a dazzling white that draws upon passages like Daniel 7. You can imagine what it would be like. It would be like you're in a pitch-black cave, and then all of a sudden you, you stagger out into the glory of the sunshine. We may have but the weakest analogy to what the disciples must have perceived in that moment. Because remember, at this time, they have spent years with Jesus and at every point and in every way. His appearance was that of nothing other than a normal, ordinary man. He was, as theologians sometimes call it, in the state of humiliation. Simply meaning that his glory, his splendor, his majesty as the Son of God was veiled was obscured. But now, at this moment, for the first and only time in his earthly ministry, the curtain is 
pulled back, unveiled for these three commoners to get just a foretaste of the heavenly beauty and how the high, high glory of the person of Christ and in comparison, a truer sense of just how low, low, low Jesus came to save sinners. I can distinctly recall when I first arrived at military college and I was walking about the quad and I happened across United States Marine Corps General John S. Grinnells, who at the time was the 18th president of the Citadel. But when I happened across him, I noticed he was wearing what we called PTs, which is just a way of saying that he was in shorts, a shirt, and his jogging sneakers, looking as ordinary and as plain as ever. But what a contrast to the next time that I saw Major General John S. Grinnells, and he was in his full-dress uniform, and he was decked with glossy medals and shiny brass and insignia, and I had this moment of almost shock and awe that he had a certain kind of glory about him that I was unaware of. And friends, that is us. And this is Luke 9. It's as if we get this sneak preview that when we all see the Lord Jesus Christ, and behold his glory that we too will be infinitely mesmerized. And even as 1 John says, that we shall see him and so be like him. And so take heart this morning. If you find yourself discouraged, downcast, even hopeless, this is the glory that God has prepared for his children. You will, you will see the king in his beauty never needing to rest your eyes, never bored, never tiring, but always joyful, beholding the glory of Christ. But you also notice that Jesus was not alone in verse 30. Of course, you find him joined by two of the most notable of Old Testament saints in Moses and Elijah. And perhaps you're wondering, as a question pops into your mind, why these two men in particular? You know, why not Adam and Abraham? Why not Daniel and David. What is so special about these two men? Well, commentators tend to agree that these two men uniquely symbolized the law and the prophets. Moses, of course, was the lawgiver coming down from Mount Sinai to deliver the Ten Commandments. And then Elijah was in many ways the great prophet who raised the dead, who called down fire from heaven. And so taken together... These two men embody, as it were, the law and the prophets, the very thing the Lord Jesus came to fulfill. So I think we see yet again another layer of the glory of Christ. The here is as if the entire Old Testament is lifting up its finger, pointing at Jesus Christ, and saying, this is the one we were pointing to. Here is the fulfillment of the law. This is the one that we spoke of, that we searched for carefully. This is the one that every prophet moved by the Holy Spirit longed to see. And this is precisely what they are discussing. As you look at verse 30, the two men are talking with him, Moses and Elijah. 31, he appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now that word departure in verse 31 is just the Greek word exodos. And you can probably make out our English word exodus. And so they're speaking to Jesus about his exodus. And of course, the exodus is something that Moses would have been all too familiar with. 
himself being the instrument of it. And so who knows how the conversation went. But maybe at one point, Moses says, as he starts to reminisce about the glory of the Old Testament, you remember the time of the heavy hand of Pharaoh, the tyranny and oppression of God's people, how he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh delivered us with a strong arm, with a mighty hand, and how my face even shined in glory. And who knows, maybe Jesus then turns to Moses and he says, Moses, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful as a servant, but Moses, now I must, I must be faithful as a son. And so let us speak now of my exodus, the exodus that I am going to accomplish, that I will accomplish the once for all redemption of sin. The once-for-all deliverance from the tyranny of bondage, of guilt, of corruption, of the fear of punishment. Moses, you did so well leading people to the promised land. But now let's talk of what I am going to lead people to. That I'm going to endure the cross. That I'm going to despise its shame. And that I will lead my people to everlasting glory. And who knows, maybe Elijah then chimes in and he says, hey... Do you remember that time with that helpless widow, how I helped her? I stretched my body out over that dead boy three times, and that boy was revived. Maybe Jesus says, Elijah, well done. Well done, little brother. You did so well, but now we must speak of the resurrection that I am about to accomplish, that I myself will be resurrected, and therefore everyone, who is joined to me by faith, will so likewise be. Friends, do you see something of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ? And can it be that this same Christ, full of glory, dazzling white, the same Christ is the very same one who will undergo the cursed death of the cross? Do you see something of the excellency of this exodus? If you're here this morning and not a Christian, perhaps you're thinking, well, I really have very little concern for the glory of Christ. But it's really no matter because I live a very fulfilled and and happy and, and meaningful life. You must know that God's word testifies to you. That that is, in fact, a testimony of the power of unbelief. That your fulfillment is rather more so a deceptive illusion. Because there is no lasting peace. And there is no fulfillment apart from this glorious Christ. And he bids you to come to him today. To come to him in simple, childlike faith and repentance. And hear the good news that God will shine the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ upon you. Now Luke, it seems, he wants us to, like a good director I suppose, spin the camera angle around for a minute. Because we have... Thus far, rightly kept our lens focused on Jesus Christ. But he, of course, is not the only one present on the mountain. And so if you hop to verse 32, and as you were, if we spin the camera angle around on the other characters, it's a little anticlimactic. Because here we have Jesus. He's full of resplendent glory and luminosity. He's over here. And then you, you spin the camera angle over around to the disciples, and they are taking a siesta. Right? Apparently one of the greatest moments in all of human history, they say this is an ideal time for a catnap. Verse 32 says they were 
heavy with sleep, like wearing a, a heavy backpack of snooze, if you will. Recently at our home, the smoke detector alarm went off. It was a false alarm, going off for no reason at all, but of course going off at 3 a.m. in the morning. But that's not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is that somehow my two-year-old son slept right through the most bombastic chirping I've ever heard, right? To be two years old again, I know. And as one commentator argues, that's the disciples. They possess this extraordinary ability to slumber, particularly at the times, he says, when they should be most active, most awake. And I think that's accurate, but I also think that's a bit one-sided. Because are they really that different from us? Could we really boast that we so far outdo them in our own zeal when it comes to spiritual matters? Some of us, after all, find it hard to stay awake in church. And we leave church with bruised ribs because we're getting one of these all the time. It is unnatural to wake up. I don't know about you, but I've been practicing sleep for decades, and I still have to use an alarm clock to wake up. And how much more so when it comes to the spiritual awakening of the soul. Wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. You can ask, how often do we slumber when we could be slaughtering our sins? When we could be fighting the good fight? When we could be redeeming the time? How much easier it is to be complacent rather than show courage? To indulge in folly rather than seek out to wisdom? To settle for the spiritual status quo rather than pursue holiness? So perhaps the disciples can teach us so much because we see so much of ourselves in them. That when Christ seems withdrawn, it may simply be our own idleness. But hear the promise. Hear the encouragement once more. Wake up and Christ will. He will shine upon you. And that is exactly what happens next. If you look at verse 32 and observe when the disciples hear that phrase became fully awake. What happened? What feast is set before their eyes? They are awakened to behold his glory. Kids, I'm sure you can remember a time when it was time to watch your, your favorite movie. Maybe it was movie night at your house. And there you are, you're watching your favorite movie in your nice, cool, dark, air-conditioned room. And maybe you start to doze off a little bit. Or more accurately, if we're at my home, maybe you look over and mom and dad are dozing off and they're falling asleep. And you know what's coming. It's the best part of the movie is about, about to come up. And so you walk over to mom and dad and you give them a little nudge and say, wake up, wake up. This is the best part of the movie. You cannot miss this part. Well, kids know this. Jesus Christ is the best, the most preeminent. You cannot miss Jesus Christ. And he's bidding to you today to wake up, to come to him and listen to his word. And what good news for us, even grown-ups, that God knows our sleepy disposition. He knows our weak frame, and so he gives us the Holy Spirit to quicken us, to enliven us, to enlighten us, to shake us up, to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that is a word on the glory of Christ, but let us now consider the second part. Let us consider the authority of Christ. Because the disciples are just getting 
warmed up. As you look at verse 33, you see Moses and Elijah are departing, but Peter, never, of course, one to, to bridle his tongue, he pipes up with this suggestion. Master, it's good, it's beautiful that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And you can just tell from the way Luke frames it that it's an improper suggestion. It's an ill-conceived suggestion, but the question, of course, is why? What's so off about this offer? Now, the Greek word for tent is the word so often used for tabernacle, and so it seems like he's channeling the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and so some say Peter's got the right desire, but it's just the wrong time because Jesus' time has not yet come. He hasn't completed his exodus, so to speak. I think that might well be, but I think the more compelling idea is that Peter's misguided when he says, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because remember what we just looked at last week. Jesus asked them, who, are the, who do the masses say that I am? And they say, some say Elijah. And who do you say that I am? We say that you are the Christ. And yet now, here is that same Peter putting Christ on par with, equivalent to Elijah. Here is Peter leveling out the unique glory of Christ and placing him beside a Moses, beside an Elijah. Peter is unknowingly either pulling Christ down to their level or propping up Moses and Elijah to his level. Just moments after, they beheld his radiance. I do think we could ask the question, how often do we unwittingly do likewise? Bringing down Christ or boosting up other things to his level be it either boosting up a well-respected teacher, church tradition, giving pride of place to our feelings, our plans, our ideas, that they're held with such a tight grip that it truly begins to rival Christ. This is a perennial temptation of the church, and it summons us to honor him as nothing less than the Son of God. And ironically and beautifully, it's Peter who later writes that that we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy, that in our hearts he has no equals, that just as no one can match his glory, so too no one can match his authority. And the question is, do you embrace both? Well, Peter's suggestion barely gets off the ground before he's interrupted because you notice verse 34, a cloud begins to descend upon the group. Now, Luke, of course, is not just an amateur meteorologist who's just updating us on the weather, Rather, this cloud evokes the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory cloud, the same cloud that descended upon the tabernacle, the same cloud that descended upon the temple, the cloud of Ezekiel's vision, and at this point, it has been 600 years, 600 years since this cloud has been seen, and now here it is upon this Jesus of Nazareth. It's really as if God is preaching his own sermon, as if to say the shadow is gone, and here, here is my perfect image. Here is God with us, the fullness of God dwelling bodily. Yes, the face of Moses reflected, but the face of Jesus Christ shines. He is not reflecting anything. This is the glory of the only begotten Son. And you can put all that together, the glory and the cloud and the presence of God, and it's no wonder, as you see at verse 34, that the disciples' reaction is one of fear. They are afraid. They are terrified. My most beloved seminary professor, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, 
he would so often remind uh, us students in class. I really think he just wanted to, to purge all the sappy evangelicalism out of us. But he would remind us again and again, over and over and over, that when man encounters the living God, the reaction is not what we would all too easily assume. It is not a moment of levity. It is not a moment to skip and dance. It is not a light-hearted moment. Man's normal reaction is to fall down in fear and to cry out, woe is me, woe is me. And so the disciples, there they are in fear. And the reverence only intensifies. Verse 35, this voice booms from the clouds and says, this is my son. And before we can even discuss what that meant to the disciples, we dare not skip over what it meant to Jesus Christ. Fathers, do not ever underestimate the words that you speak to your children. It is in no way accidental that at the most vital turning points of his earthly ministry, God the Father breaks open the heavens and he speaks to his son. You remember the last time was at the baptism, at the outset of his ministry, moments away from, from the temptation of the devil, that the Father assured his son with those words. And now here again, with an accelerated pace towards the cross, the Father again affirms to his son that yes, though in the eyes of the world, you will be despised, you will be rejected, you will be mocked, you will be scourged, you will be beaten in my eyes, son. You are my chosen one. You are precious to me. Amazing love. How can it be? The amazing love of the Father that he has brought us into that very same love that he has extended to us through Jesus Christ. And do you have that assurance? As we are a people who daily take up our cross, there may be nothing more vital to know and more vital to have than the assurance of God's love to us in Christ. And so this voice is not simply for the benefit of Jesus, though of course it is, but you can also tell there's a grander intent because as verse 35 continues, he writes, Therefore, this is my chosen Son, and so listen to Him. Of course, it would be one thing to say that when God speaks, man must listen. But that's not quite the Trinitarian point that is made here, is it? God does not say, listen to me. He says, listen to my son. As if to say he's decidedly not like Moses and Elijah. He speaks as my beloved son, as one who has all authority on heaven and on earth. He is the image of the invisible God. And so this summons for us a very simple question. How do we listen to Christ today? I mean, this is all well and good for, the, for these three disciples, but if we are to listen to him, how does Christ speak to us in the here and now? You can imagine someone saying, hey, it's great for them. They had this wonderful mountaintop experience, and they got to see the cloud and so forth. And if only I, too, had some kind of dramatic mountaintop experience, I would listen to God. Well, I think it's worth the page turner, if you will. Make your way with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter was, of course, written by Peter. He's one of the disciples on the mountaintop who heard God's voice. And if you're in 2 Peter and you look at chapter 1 of 2 Peter, as it was our gospel reading, and you look at the end of verse 16, Peter explains, Yes, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son 
And what might we expect next, right? Should he say, oh, if only you would have been there too. You also could have beheld his majesty, but alas, you were not there. Tough luck for you. No, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. So when Peter places his mountaintop experience on one scale, And the holy word of God on the other scale. And he measures them out. He declares that this, this, the word of God, is more certain, more God-breathed, more firm a foundation than any experience he might have had. And so how do we listen to Christ but through his word? Scripture and Jesus Christ may never be separated even for a moment. It is through his word that he speaks to you day by day with clarity, with authority, with a fullness of grace and truth, evermore lifting up the lid on the treasure chest that is Jesus Christ for you to behold his glory. And so if that is how we listen to Christ, the church's burden is, of course, to then ask, well, just how well do we listen to Jesus Christ? Do we listen with submissive ears and a ready heart? Or will it be a rebellious heart that has selective hearing, that takes the clear words of Christ on matters like sexuality, like covenant marriage, like the sanctity of life as words that could simply be discarded? And so the church's only cry is, God, give us repentance. Grant us ears to hear that we might have an obedient heart. Well, as you want to make your way back to Luke 9, as we'll close out, as we've seen this morning, His glory and his authority truly do go hand in hand as a happy couple. And so I want to close this portion of Scripture and sum it up in three simple words. Wake, see, and speak. Wake, see, and speak. So firstly, wake. If you're back at Luke 9, you want to glance again at verse 32, you see that wonderful phrase, fully awake. And remember, Luke paints this portrait of this progression of them going fully zonked out, to a little bit more awake, to then fully awake. If you're familiar with the great work, The Pilgrim's Progress, you might remember at the very end of Pilgrim's Journey, he comes across a character named Heedless. I say comes across, he comes across Heedless, and Heedless is fully asleep. He's zonked out, and he didn't make it to the very end. And Bunyan put it so well when he said, the enemy knows that the pilgrim will be the most weary the most susceptible to sleepiness towards the end of the journey. It's the enemy's last resort. Bunyan was wise enough to know that we face the exact same challenge. Christian, are you awake? If you've been walking with Christ for years, have you fallen into a kind of a, a sleepwalk marked by a lack of zeal, a lack of fervor for the things of God? a lukewarm approach to holiness, a lethargy when it comes to the means of grace. And truth be told, all of us fall into such sleepiness from time to time. We battle a kind of spiritual narcolepsy, and so we must not only awake, but secondly, see. Behold, again, verse 32, they awake to see the glory of Christ. If you glance at verse 36, notice when it's all said and done, Jesus is found there alone. Again, perhaps you say, well, yeah, well, well and good for them, but if only I could see the glory of Christ. 
If only I could behold his beauty and his majesty. Well, I'll put it to you this way. God the Father has too much delight, too much infinite pleasure in his Son to mute or to hide his glory. And the Holy Spirit has too great of a ministry, too great of a work to not unfold the majesty of Christ to his children. And I could go on and on and on and on. But you get the point. There's a Trinitarian conspiracy at work to unfold the glory of Christ to the praise of God the Father all through the power of the Spirit. For we see by faith now and then by sight, and it is transformative. It's as Paul says, beholding the glory of Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So I cannot improve upon what John Owen said when he wrote, let us get it fixed in our minds that this glory of Christ is the best, the most noble, the most beneficial truth that we can think about or set our hearts on. Can you say amen to that? That in suffering, in affliction, in the throes of temptation, the cares of the world, in the face of death itself, there is nothing better for me to set my heart on than this glory of Christ. And lastly, speak. If you glance at verse 36, you find that the disciples... Interestingly, keep a tight lip on this. They tell no one about it. And you see that phrase, in those days. And that, I think, is the reason for it. As if Luke is pointing us to see in those days, where the disciples were, but we live in these days. In other words, we live in the days when Christ has accomplished his exodus. Christ has accomplished the work that he was given to do. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And we live in the days of a commission to go forth and to baptize the nations and to disciple them. In other words, we could say we live in the days when it's good and right and fitting to open our mouths and say, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. For Christians are those who submit to his authority and get to see his glory. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our everlasting Father, behold what manner of love that you have given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And so we rejoice to know that we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when the Lord Jesus appears, we shall be like him, even as we see him as he is. And you have given us this purifying hope right now today that we might increase in it as we long to see the King in his beauty. And so we ask it in his name and amen.